Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome back to our podcast series, Lessons Learned from Mars Hill. This week's episode is titled, Oh, That's Just the Way Men Are, and it is inspired by the Mars Hill episode, The Things We Do to Women. We are also excited to be rejoined by our panel, Alicia Crumpton, Ben Brewster, and Kevin Holland. Thanks, Tina. Good to be back with you and our panel. In the Mars Hill episode that Tina just mentioned, Mike Cosper addresses the femininity, fear, and fantasy that fueled conversations around gender and womanhood at Mars Hill. He explores what happens when words meant to protect women end up hurting them and how the theology about headship and submission can create fear and shame when wielded by the wrong hands. Our goal here is not to re-examine the abuses experienced at Mars Hill. We are, however, interested in discussing how narratives of hypermasculinity and abuse can manifest themselves within church culture and culture as a whole. We do this with an eye towards shalom, peace, well-being, and healthy communities of grace. Let me say before we get started that we understand the role of women in the church is currently a hot topic. Debates over complementarianism and egalitarianism can become contentious. The how, where, and, and when women lead and serve is a question under discussion in a lot of our churches. We don't intend to have that debate here, nor do we wish in this particular podcast series to take sides in that discussion. Our goal is to seek and find common ground and for Common Ground's unity to be a place of safety where we can discuss the problems and issues that threaten to harm and divide us. We're seeking a place where we can listen to one another with love and respect, even when we disagree. A place where we can learn to have those conversations. And with that introduction, let's listen to a clip from Mars Hill, Episode 5. This revelation and this kind of apocalypse actually ends up being one of God's really great gifts because then we get to take a minute to say like, what created this? How can we educate ourselves, each other, the vulnerable, especially, if it's spiritual abuse and toxic theology and this kind of bullying? You know, what does it mean to hold powerful people accountable um, instead of giving them a free pass because we're just so busy saying, well, but, but look at all the good that they did. You know, one of my big convictions, I think, that that really probably has its roots even during this season of our life was that it doesn't matter how right you are or how right you think you are if you aren't embodying the fruit of the Spirit, right? There, there's an invitation to consider who we're listening to, um, how we speak about people, how we measure success. 
The story of the gospel is a story of mustard seeds and pearls, a savior in a manger and a crucified king. And these are disruptive images, stories that turn power upside down and reorder the world for justice and healing. Maybe all the turmoil of these years is an apocalypse. Maybe the temple's tables are turning upside down. And maybe God tears things down to build something healthier and more whole. Too many women in the church, not just at Mars Hill, but any who live in a world as sexualized and objectifying as our own, have found themselves on the wrong side of an imbalance of power. But the promise of the gospel is that one day, justice will roll like a river, and the dignity that's theirs as image bearers will suffer oppression no more. Mama told me being a woman was hard and she wasn't lying. Your daughter argues with lions to bear fruit. I tear through tigers who try to tie us with snares too. Titus, we wear it like it's a sweater. I swear America... Well, I want to say welcome back to our panel. Uh, again, we've got a great panel assembled for this conversation in this series. Dr. Alicia Crumpton is with us. She is in Phoenix, Arizona. And then we've got Ben Brewster with us. He is with us from Louisiana and Kevin Holland from California up in the Los Angeles area. So we've got a great group. Welcome back, folks. So let's get started. And I wonder if, uh, Alicia, if you would start out our conversation today and talk about what the big picture of this issue is and maybe even why we came up with this title for this episode. Whew. It's a big topic. It's it's very personal for me. So I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll segue and tell two stories. Early in our marriage, um, the elders called my husband into their office, a couple of elders, and they talked for thirty minutes, and the conversation went something like this. These specific phrases stick in my mind years later now. First thing was, it must be tough living with someone like that, referring to me. It must be very hard to wear the pants in your family. And then the call to action. You need to man up and control your wife. that was a hard day in our house. (laughs) And when I went privately to some women for counsel, they said, oh, that's just the way men are. The second story I would tell is how when the the clip was aired on TV about uh, Mr. Trump and the grab him by the the P was talked about. I posted on my Facebook page a thank you to the men that I know who are not like that. They don't talk about women like that. They don't interact with me or the other women that I know personally like that. And a couple of Christian women who I hold in a high regard contacted me privately and uh, admonished me for speaking negatively about Mr. Trump. And the, the gist of it was men talk like that. Oh, that's just the way men are. And then I needed to get over it. 
And here's the question I have for men who might be listening to this and women who think that, what does it mean to be a Christian man? Why do strong women stand oppositionally? Why do we think about male and female in the 2D? That for women to be strong, men must be weak. And so we've inserted a hierarchy. Women are subordinate to men. I read the scripture. I don't read it that way. We're, we're all created in God's image. And yet, when I raise that as a point of question, I'm told that I don't understand scripture. And so the male voice becomes the arbiter of the hermeneutic accuracy. Um, finally, the other aspect of this, and, and my strength has always been seen in many, in many venues has seemed to be in, been a question of concern. I've been, a, I'm 60 years old. I've been a believer since I was a little girl. I wasn't even in my teens when I was baptized. I pray. Sorry, I'm getting so emotional. I pray. I read my scripture. I meditate. I seek God's voice. And when I say, I think this is the way I need to go, I'm responding to a life of faith and a sense of obedience to God's call. And I don't understand a man or a woman who can look at that and say, you're wrong. You're not a man and therefore this is wrong. And I don't understand the dismissiveness of my spirituality and my lived experience of who God is and his call on my life. I don't get it. And because so of your gender. Because of my gender. So when people say, oh, that's just the way that men are, I think there's a lot at stake here with regard to how women are perceived and the judgments and the dismissiveness of their lived experience in terms of who God is and the call of God on their life. Who stands in judgment of women? <laughs> this is These are the questions I have. So, oh, just the, the way men are. Is this really who Christian men aspire to be? How do they define masculinity? How has culture influenced their, their definitions of masculinity? These are the things that I'm thinking about today. What are some of your responses, guys, to what Alicia has said? Well, I can just start and uh, say I can't uh, thank you enough, Alicia, for sharing what you did. And um, it just, uh, the power of a story from your life and those two quotes uh, from which we derive the title really move me, even though I know, obviously we prep for this subject and I've listened to the podcast, Mars Hill podcast and as we've taught, but just even in the hearing of you recount the story, I, I felt it differently. It hit different 
lately because I have not been in a conversation like that hearing those words. So it just from I guess I would just say I appreciate your um, courage and honesty to speak on lived experience. It's not theory. It's not you know coming from some some idea of how the world is. It's actually hearing from uh, fellow believers. And so uh, it's moving, it's poignant. It's, it's also heartbreaking to think about being in an ecosystem or in an environment or a culture that is characterized that way. But it just speaks once again to the blind spots that, um, you know, there's, there's not a, tri- a Christian tribe, there's not a Christian that doesn't have blind spots. And um, I, I, I feel like uh, you are ministering to me and to all of us about really addressing these things. So personally, I'm really grateful and I'm, I'm heartbroken thinking about how many multiple times uh, women have experienced those things and how many times uh, unwittingly or wittingly um, our gender and I and others have, have uh, been a part of the problem and not calling those things out. I think we need testimonies like yours, Alicia, because sometimes um, we, we don't see things. And uh, as you were telling your story, my first reaction was, how could those men say that? That was horrible. And then quickly, the next reaction was to look in the mirror and say, you know, when have, when have I taken part in such activity for, for whatever reason, or, or not even having an insidious uh, motives, but um, just buying into a system. Um, And I think sometimes we have systems that we operate in and we do in ministry as well, in particular denominational backgrounds, uh, very patriarchal systems. And when it benefits us, we don't always see the abuses and we don't see the damage that's done to other people. So um, your story was very prophetic, Alicia, in that it, it causes us to take a deep look into the mirror. How do some of our views in Christian circles of power and strength, perhaps of masculinity and femininity, how do they contribute to these things happening in, in Christian churches and Christian circles? And, and have, we, have we really taken our views of masculinity and femininity from Scripture or maybe more from the culture? Speak to that a little bit. Well, as you listen to the Mars Hill podcast, and it, it just was so riveting. And as, as you can see by its reach and how uh, moving uh, just countless people how it was to them. Uh, I think a, a couple of things jump out. First, it I, I to answer your ke- question directly, Kevin, I think we can often have our models of leadership shaped by the strongest, most um, apparently successful, most charismatic figure in our lives. So if that's the pastor in Mars Hill's case, that was you get a theology, an orthodoxy, and an, orthopra- and an orthopraxy shaped by the main leader's worldview, lens, family of origin, bent, 
Uh, I've seen that in, in uh, my fellowship. I just I would just say that it's much more pronounced when you look at it. Um, having been in a situation and then having gotten out of it, you realize, wow, so much of this is shaped by this the lenses through which this person sees the world rather than the lordship of Jesus on a practical matter. And, and what is, what is even, um, I'd say makes it even more difficult is that those can be melded. So you saw in the Mars Hill case, you've got this worldview and orientation being married to this is what God wants. Um, and that is, I think an abuse or a misappropriation that, can all too often happen because it's it's sort of sanitized in the name of I'm I'm leading this way because this is what God wants rather than I'm leading this way because this is how I'm already oriented I'm looking and I and I sort of co-opt a biblical justification for it one of the things I would probably so just sort of add to that is thinking about um, 2d thinking I think one of the things that as I've been reading through Genesis uh, preparatory to this, this session, there were three aspects of creation. There was the, the, the environment itself and male and female. And it was this trinity, if you will, of creation that, that are expressions of who God is. And Part of our incapacity, I think, at times to see the wholeness is that we've reduced it to 2D, the masculine and the feminine. And we've ascribed, and from that, we've ascribed a certain subordinate status to men and women and d dominion over the planet. I mean, some, some people actually think that we're just here to consume rather than to steward or to caretake. You know, power in and of itself is not a bad thing. Um, in 1959, French and Raven, and here I am to talk a little bit about theory because that's probably where I'm more comfortable. Um, they, they talked about the six basis of power, legitimate, reward, expert, referent, coercive, and then informational. And they're, they're, they would posit that everyone has power. But what often happens in 2D thinking is that it posits a, a, a this or that rather than a both and. And so it creates it within it, a subordinate, a hierarchy. And that if you're not this, then you're that. And it from that, there's all sorts of negative assertions about the other because it st always stands in relation to the this. <laughs> that always stands in relation to and is subordinate to the this or the that. So I think that, you know, and I'm not a Bible scholar, but as I've tried to understand who God is through creation, he wanted us to focus on the whole. And we became separated from that and became very strongly oriented towards the this or that um, and the 2D. And I don't know how we how we sort of overcome that, except to have these kinds of discussions, perhaps. 
Kind of following up to that, are the stereotypes like men being strong and women being feminine limiting us as image bearers? And what do we lose in the church when men and women can't be seen as both strong and tender? Don't we lose some of our connection with the biblical narrative? Um, when we, we see women portrayed in scripture, they're not just portrayed as domestic homemakers or portrayed in one way. I mean, um, Barak wouldn't go into battle unless Deborah was with him. Um, Jail is the one who killed Sisera. Um, we see people multi-layered throughout the biblical narrative. And when we try to pigeonhole people and say, you're this way, or we what's the term we've been using hyper masculinity when we promote that and, and men are supposed to all be this way. Uh, I wonder if we lose some connection with the, the narrative in scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and perhaps even with the image of God himself, I mean, Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians and first Thessalonians, he, he described himself not just as a father, but as a kind of as a mother caring for and nurturing for her children. So, so we see both sides to this in God himself, kind of the, the tenderness equated with the mother. And uh, so I think there's that to consider. Agreed. There's so many examples. You think of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, think of Deborah, think of Phoebe and uh, Yodia and Syntyche and all these prominent women. You think about how Jesus lifted up Mary and, you know, her example is going to be, um, you know, ring through history and so forth. So I think we, we lose the kingdom ethic that God wants us to have. And we instead adopt a worldly view, uh, sort of, if, if you want to, um, you know, patriarchal or, um, you know, hyper-masculinity, we see, I guess what happens is we see what's happening in the world that is being successful. And and then we, the church begins to imitate the world, the sense of um, whether it, it has efficacy politically in business. We see people that are successful in those areas exhibiting these traits, like Alicia said, for me to be powerful, you have to be weak. There's no way we can both win for me to win, you have to lose. For me to be in my persona as an image bearer, I've got to, yours has somehow got to be minimized. And so I think that temptation to black and white everything uh, and lose, have no nuance hurts us. And I also believe it hurts us in our witness uh, to the world. How in the world are we going to reach people and, and exhibit what Jesus talked about in John 13. This is how people are going to know. It's not by your theology. It's it's how you are and how you treat each other. And if they sense or feel like, why is it that, uh, you know, the women in this, in this church seem not to uh, have as much uh, of a role here and so forth and so on, or I don't see the kind of, I see this similar dynamic at work with my boss and someone with this pastor or with this community group leader and so on. So I think we risk that, um, where, where like the Samaritan, he knows less of the word of God, 
but has more of the heart of God relative to people who are suffering. And these guys that know the Bible better, the priest and Levite, are stuck in their their worldview, their religious worldview, and therefore they miss the human uh, the human need. So I think there's a lot to lose. I was just going to say, I think one of the, the the most difficult questions I get asked, and from non-believers and some believers alike, is like. Why on earth do you stay in the church? Why would you stay there? And that's a very difficult, and then it opens the door for a lot of conversations. But I I find myself talking a lot about who God is and not always having pat answers for why I stay in the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just confessing. Like, why would you, like one of my friends who's a non-believer says, I don't even know why you associate with that name. It's contrary to who you are. And and the first time I heard this person say this, it hit me in the face like a wet squirrel. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, like, and, and then I realized that they saw a difference in the way their perception of what the church is like. And the behaviors that they saw, my husband and I uh, try to try to model, were different than how they perceived the church. And so, I don't know. That's a hard. That sometimes it's a hard one. I I grieve for my female friends who have left the church. They've just said it's not a place for me. So I I don't know. I, Maybe we can help some of our listeners by having a little bit of discussion about the term hyper masculinity that often comes up in the context of these conversations. And, you know, I think maybe some of the males that are out there listening, maybe there's some newer Christians wondering what, you know, what does a Christian man look like? How is that different from the world? What does the term hyper masculinity mean? How is it used in conversations like this? I can uh, jump in first. I I don't. I'm trying to still picture what being hit by a wet squirrel would feel like. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard that phrase. So that's a little disconcerting. Blowing my mind on so many different levels, so many different levels. Um, but I, I had a conversation recently with um, a, f- a fellow pastor who's talking about a relationship that he has with a guy that used to mentor him, used to disciple him, and the and the phrase he used. As he said, when we were we're discussing issues with this person, there's just no room for him. Felt like they would talk about an issue, but at the end of it, it always had to be the way the other person wanted it to be, and there was no room for him. So, Alicia, when you said people, you know, people, women, you talk to, there's no place that that what a what a soul killing feeling that there's no place for me here. Um, we we've got to, and and I, of course that's not every I've. I think they're, as we all know, they're sterling examples of godly women and men who who are doing well in this area. But there are far too many, as we saw with the Marcio podcast, that 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 are not. When I think about hyper masculinity, I think about. Uh, I guess I would say it's a a view of men that is contrary to. Uh, 
the great command, rather the, um, what am I thinking about that? The golden rule, uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. So it's opposite of that. Nobody wants someone domineering over them, but then hypermasculinity guys feel like we have the right because of gender to dominate other people. And then Paul the platinum rule where he says, think of others as better. I think hypermasculinity is because I'm a man, because I'm perhaps have a, a larger physical stature then somehow my ideas are better. So I think it hypermasculinity is the opposite of the golden rule and, and the platinum rule. So that's, uh, but, and it's odd how that would happen in a church. It's uh, it, it's really, really uh, unfortunate. You know, this, this term, you know, that's just the way men are. When you said that earlier, Alicia, that, that, of course, it stirs up all kinds of troubling pictures to me. Um, you know, we're we're taking people from a world system, the kingdom of darkness, and translating them, God does it, not us. They're being transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. I mean, is there any area of our life where we leave things at, well, that's just the way they are? Uh, God's redeeming the whole mess of our lives and bringing it more into conformity with uh, the image of Jesus. Uh, why do you suppose we're content at times on this one to just leave it there as if change isn't possible or a new way isn't, uh, isn't possible? Can you talk about that a little bit? Why is this one left, uh, left out there unlike other areas of our lives? I, I would... I'd love, thank you for that question. I'm sorry, Tina. Go. No, go. Uh, uh, stop me if I'm, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty lit up with this discussion. I, I would love to jump in. I think it's to, to Tina's first story, it's, um, or, or to the Mars Hill situation. I think we don't, it's a third rail and think similar to the religious teachers and leaders of Jesus' time. They were godly people, ostensibly. They had the word of God, but there was just too much to lose, too, too much of a cost to lose the, the worldview they had, some of the practices they had, the importance in society they had to, to accept what Jesus said. So they just didn't have room for it. And they felt like they had more to gain, uh, less to lose uh, by ignoring what Jesus taught than embracing something new is better, you know? So in that same way, the woman who, you know, the women who admonished Alicia about, uh, thanking men for not being, uh, following the example of the former president, that's the example of, Hey, you know, we get th this person is going to help us get what we want politically in society, whatever. So if, if they're going to help me get what I want um, in those ways, protect me, keep the world and society the way I want it to be, make me feel comfortable, this is all I've known, I'm willing to overlook those downsides because in the end, the ROI is still higher and I get something else I want. I get a I have to, I can, let me ignore these, these sinful behaviors or attitudes because I get the political or, or uh, you know, ecclesiastical outcome I want in church or in, in society. 
Don't you think, too, it's the same issue I hear with between the racial justice issue. Um, as a white person, I'm learning more and and feeling more accountability, but there's an uncomfortableness because me changing, I give something up so that someone else can be equal. And I think in the relationship to men and women, it's the same thing. I think men in theory say, yeah, that that seems right. Or yeah, scripture, I can see what you're saying. But to really fully embrace that means that somebody has to be uncomfortable. And so in the case in our country right now, it's people of color have to be uncomfortable because we we see the, the problem, but we don't want the change because it's going to impact us. And the same with men and women in the church. It's a thing where I think men can be sympathetic towards us. But in the end, like even the fact that and having the conversation about this podcast, trying to figure out where the voices of Alicia and I fit into like who speaks first and things like that. It's because of the way that as women bring these things to the attention of the church, it's easy to dismiss and almost vilify, maybe that's too strong a word, but to, to be dismissive. And because there's power will be lost if power is shared in the opinion of leaders in the church who are in our movement, mostly all men. And so I think that's, there's just going to have to be some uncomfortableness and some willingness to, to, to share and we, in general, are not good at sharing, but especially if it means we have to give something up. Ooh, you're reminding me of Walter Brueggemann's book. Uh, I think it's called Journey to the Common Good. And um, in that book, he talks about how um, Christianity has been sort of hijacked by a viewpoint of scarcity versus abundance that we're so influenced by culture that we think in terms of if you have it, then I don't. And how that that worldview of scarcity influences us on so many different levels, male-female relations, collaboration, partnering, sharing information, all, just a lot of different stuff versus, you know, God of abundance is we're all created in his image. We're all image bearers. We all have a call upon our lives. And, and I think that I hadn't really thought of it until you guys were talking. I thought of it more sort of in economic terms, but I think it applies here, this idea of scarcity. It's, it's you know, if you have it, I don't kind of thinking mm -hmm. that's just not healthy. And I'm going to argue it's not biblical, although some might think their interpretation is biblical. So as you can imagine, the uh, past few years with the racial reckoning in the country and in our churches has been a, a crucible of transformation for many um, and definitely has, I, I've called it a second conversion for me uh, personally, and obviously not in terms of salvation, but in terms of just opening my eyes to, to the realities that I was aware of, but perhaps not the magnitude of them, but I heard a quote talking about the idea of racial equity, where it said that 
to someone who has privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I thought, that's really interesting and profound. So if you look at it in terms of gender equity, which obviously is all through scripture, you know, Paul and Galatians, there's, there, there isn't even a male or female. We're all one in Christ. So, uh, but when you look at it, I think that feeling that men can have of as women, if, if I empower women, then somehow, um, you know, I, I lose something. It's, it's wrong headed, but it's deeply embedded. The fear of fear of loss. I think that's so good, Kevin. Um, as a white Southern man, um, here in the South, you know, it's easy to be content when a system is benefiting you, when your voice is always heard. Um, and and so you fear, what am I going to lose? And politicians throw this out at us all the time. What, oh, if if this happens, you're going to lose this. And even in the church, we might give lip service to racial reconciliation or or to the uh, women being uh, equals, in, but then we we keep people in check because we're, we 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 fear losing that power. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I just, man, I want to stay in this group after this podcast. This is helpful to me. <laughs> <laughs> So let's listen to another clip from Marcel, The Things We Do to Women. Mark Driscoll's expectations for women in the church were unambiguous. He communicates his view again and again in sermon after sermon. But probably nowhere does he make it as explicit as here. In a talk that was part of a series of sessions he led for women at Mars Hill in 2001. You may be able to show me a family where the kids are well-loved and the wife works full-time and everything is great. And I will show you a thousand that are not, and I will tell you that the majority should speak loudly. And in this church, that's the way it's going to be. I won't lie to you. Because I am responsible for the families. And I'm responsible for the conditions of the homes. I have to admit, I find the audacity of that clip pretty astounding. To say with such rigid authority, that's the way it's going to be. And what you find when you poke around at Mars Hill was, that's pretty much how it was. Men and women felt compelled by that vision, either finding a sense of calling in it or believing it was the right thing to do because it came from the guy in the pulpit with the Bible. And again, it wasn't just that men should provide and women should be home. If a woman was interested in anything outside of the home, the advice and the challenge to the men was to lead your wife better. And the advice to the women was to get married if they weren't, and if they were, to have another kid. This is Tim Smith talking about the way these ideas practically worked out in the life of the church. Because then they wouldn't have time for as much of, as many other ambitions. And at at multiple points, particularly early on in the church, it was seen as a disqualification for leadership and specifically the office of elder if a wife worked outside of the home. Boy, Tina, um, as a, both a person in pastoral ministry and as a man, it was kind of hard to hear that. 
You know, one of the first things that strikes me listening to that is how um, how he perceived his role as pastor of that church and how he took a particular vision from how he interpreted certain scriptures and made it into a pattern for everyone that needed to be rigidly enforced in the church. You know, this is what we do in this church. That, that was troubling. Um, what else did you hear in that? that we should, I'd like our panel to address that. What else do we hear there that, that we need to talk about? Well, I think the thing of not just working outside the home being something that would exclude their husbands from leadership or eldership, but the phrase that they used on ambition outside the home. And so I think that that's something that is nuanced, but important. And the the prescriptive thing of then you need to have more kids so she has less time to have ambition. And as a single woman, that just, to me, I'm just like, I would be offended if I was married with kids, but I'm even, I'm just thinking that I don't see how that plays into like how God equips us for service in, in his church and to the body of Christ and to our witness in the world. And so just that idea of women not not being able to be ambitious, not just work outside the home. Yeah, maybe, maybe it takes and makes what for some are traditional roles and suggests those are actually derived from Scripture and are biblical roles. So let's throw that out to our panel to talk about those, those two issues that we raise. One of the things that's bubbling up for me in thinking about pastoral authority when I listen to that was the Ephesians 4 model for the church, uh, thinking about apests, apostles, preachers, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. You know, it sort of gives a new light for me in terms of how we're designed, how the church was designed to consider a, a multiplicity of roles, no one higher than the other, but each having a different image-bearing capacity, perhaps, and that's, I'm still thinking it through, but that's something that's bubbling up for me is this, the, the supremacy of his leadership was kind of shocking <laughs> and, and overreaching in my mind. Uh, the husband and wife in the marital relationship have a relationship that's uniquely ordained as well. So how does, how does that work? It's obviously a pastoral overreach, and speaking as someone who's been in pastoral ministry for decades, it's a it's a dance. Any relationship with a pastor, a leader, and the congregation, it's a dance. Uh, it's it is often uh, pastors feel that uh, perhaps people that are in their charge, that they are shepherding or that they're leading, should should respect them as those who have the calling that we do and have the education and spend the time in scripture to wrestle to correctly handle the word and to preach and, you know, uh, to admonish and counsel with all wisdom to try to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And so I know that there are times when I, I can feel that, uh, you know, I wish people would pay more attention or, and of course that speaks to, okay, perhaps I need to hone my craft more, but then the flip side is, <laughs> I, I, I feel like we spend less time as pastors 
really thinking about how much do we respect the members, the how much do we do we believe that the Holy Spirit lives in each one of them and that they're competent to counsel and teach one another and that, you know, the word is living and active and and uh, just that sense of perhaps not being called to have the same respect or Christ working in the members as we want the members to have in terms of respecting uh, the pastoral leadership role. I, I, I believe once again, Matthew 20, where Jesus says, not, not so among you, you're because you have a role doesn't mean you lord it over. It means that you're the one that serves the most. But I, but I do think in this situation, it's a misunderstanding of pastoral authority and overreach, just like in a political realm where I have the right to tell someone in their home how they need to conduct their marital relationship and their vocational um, life. Um, once again, it's it's going beyond the the, the spirit of what the scriptures teach and and the actual text of what they teach. Yeah, I, I I'm think... thinking about the. Sorry, go ahead. No, ben, you go ahead, please, please. Well, I was thinking about the ambition piece, and I don't even understand it. I mean, certainly historically for me, I've been told I'm too ambitious, I'm too driven. You know, I've got too many goals and things I'm driving toward. And if you ask my mother, she's like, you've been that way your whole life. That's how you're wired. You're just it's kind of a strategist brain. I'm always... I've got this inner sense of where I'm going and I'm listening to God and I'm trying to go there and, and I help clients do strategic planning. So it's just the way I'm wired to do that. And when I hear usually men saying that women are too ambitious, I'm too ambitious. I don't even understand the assertion. If we're a believer and we're listening to God, praying to God, seeking his voice and sense of direction, and then I'm obedient to that. And then I'm too ambitious, really? I mean, it just seems, I don't know. It just seems like who's the arbiter of how, of how God speaks to each of us and the way we're uniquely designed in our calling. So I don't understand that. I don't even understand his assertion that that's a bad thing. Yeah, I think we see this play throughout history, uh, even in the Stone Campbell movement, uh, Selena uh, Holman was uh, the president of the Tennessee Christian Women's Temperance Union, Christian Women's Temperance Union. And uh, she had a, a quite lengthy back and forth with David Lipscomb at the Gospel Advocate when she was advocating that women could teach men, uh, that women were had certain gifts and here you have a woman that really was seeking to follow the will of God and was often dismissed. And the language used toward her could be condescending at times. Um, I, I think even Lipscomb said one time her writings give him the blues uh, because what she was advocating. Um, but um, it's interesting when, when she passed in 1915, before she passed, she, uh, she wanted T.B. Larimore to preach her funeral because she said, I know that he would he will never apologize for my work, my life's work. Uh, I know he never will. And so um, I think we see a couple of examples there with a woman who some people pictured and portrayed as being so ambitious and she needs to stay in her place toward um, 
uh, Laramore who who conveyed to her her value as as a woman and supported her. And, and so I think we have that choice as as not just pastors, but as as men, um, uh, if we're going to be willing to do that and to um, to truly recognize uh, women as our co-heirs with Christ, to submit to them out of reverence for Christ. Well said, Ben. And though going on right now, we had uh, in our uh, local church, we had a day of teaching a couple of weeks ago where we had a man and a woman, both of whom were scholars and um, well-respected leaders teaching on hermeneutics and also on uh, gender equality in the roles. And we're really wrestling with this concept. Of course, it's, you know, we, we talked about, we haven't had a discussion. Our church is a little over 30 years old, and this is the first time we've had this much of a robust conversation about this issue. So in one sense, we're late to the party, and I deeply regret that we regret that we haven't had the conversation sooner. On the other hand, I'm glad we finally had it and it opens, you know, <laughs> it, you know, any good conversation leads you to more questions and, and, and perhaps has fewer definitive answers, but just the fact that you had a man and a woman both at the table hearing their voices necessarily moves the ball down the field. I think for so long you haven't had diversity at the table and, and there's no, there's no way a man is going to get what the lived experience of a woman is like, like a woman would. It's just, there's just no way. There's no substitute. Uh, and so um, I think that, you know, they, they just, there, it's not like uh, in the Mars Hill example, it's not like there were any strong women leaders at the table. So there's this preaching series on whatever, on the family, how do we want to, uh, what are some blind spots that we want to make sure we 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 uh, don't miss, et cetera? And so you're going to have a, a less than ideal product if at the beginning, conceiving it, you don't have strong women voices. I do know that we're uh, one of the tensions that our elders are wrestling with, even as we look at, you know, we had uh, one of our sister churches, hey, we want to have female deacons. We, we We've been studying, and I'm talking about people with PhDs studying was Phoebe, who was a deaconess in Romans 16, is it, was she a deacon, the office, the role, was it an office, isn't it an issue, it's a role of service versus leadership, although don't want to go in that rabbit hole, but just having the conversation, and uh, one of the leaders, one of the elders was talking about, hey, well, you know, we know we, we're trying to minister to a church that is becoming more millennial and Gen Z, and we know there's a very strong and necessary ethic in the world about equality. Just there should be. So we believe in that too. I, I would hate for the church to be a taillight, as King said, where we're the ones that are seen that are not into equality. I mean, what a what a stain on, you know, I mean, uh, the whole point of the gospel is, is we're all uh, image bearers. But one of the elders said, hey, well, we don't want to succumb to culture. We want to adhere to what the scriptures teach regarding gender roles. We don't want to succumb to culture in that statement alone. It's self-indicting as though where we are now hasn't been a result of culture. <laughs> like, you know, so, no, we, we've always succumbed to culture. 
It's just we've succumbed to the culture that you grew up in, <laughs> a culture of patriarchy and, you know, where former presidents make comments like that and women say, you know, I mean, you know, that's just how men are. So, Is there not a sense that um, it, it, it seems that a way forward is encouraging all of our churches you know, to look at the whole of Scripture better and, you know, and to, and to ask the hard questions. You know, for example, we all, we all want to interpret 1 Corinthians 11 correctly, according to Paul's intent, and contextualize that today well, and, you know, Ephesians 5. But we often find ourselves picking and choosing and pitting one verse against another. You know, we'll run to Titus uh, to, to hear Paul telling older women to teach younger women to be, quote, you know, busy at home. But then we go to scriptures like Proverbs 31, and and we preach that on Mother's Day, and this, you know, virtuous woman who can find, you know, she considers a field and buys it. She's engaged in business endeavors. And we look to Lydia in Acts 16, who's this great businesswoman and, you know, such a godly woman who receives the gospel from Paul and becomes host to him in her own home. And isn't there a sense in which we need to become better Bible students instead of hanging our hats on one verse here and one verse there and responsible students? Let's listen to a clip from the Mars Hill podcast. You know, the way that we sowed to the whirlwind of patriarchy and celebrity and covering up and excusing spiritual abuse, you know, we are still now reaping the whirlwind of the consequences from that. And the opportunity then becomes, um, are you willing to acknowledge the whirlwind and begin to to engage with the work? Or are you going to pretend that this was a one-off? Part of the heartbreak of the Mars Hill story is that in the aftermath of the church's collapse, as there was a realization of some of the ways it was a toxic influence in people's lives. It's led to the loss of faith. In Rachel Den Hollander's work, she's seen that too. We do see a lot of people deconstructing their faith because the God that they've been taught is not is not a righteous God, is not really a holy God, is not a loving or a trustworthy or a safe God. Uh, it's not the God of the Bible. Uh, and so it should make sense to us that we have so many of this generation deconstructing their faith. They've been given a false gospel and given a false God. When you talk about these stories, something you often hear, including here on this podcast, is that we tolerate toxicity and unhealthy systems because look at the fruit. But having immersed in this world, it strikes me as the wrong question completely. We shouldn't ask, is it worth the fruit? But is it worth the damage? Is it worth leaving warning signs uninterrogated? Is it worth ignoring the revolving door of leaders who burn out? Is it worth turning a blind eye to a hypersexualized culture? That's not just a question for church members. It's a question for everyone. Well, coming out of that clip, we, we've got a number of things to maybe tie together and, and all as we end this podcast. How do we, it, panelists, as you kind of think about this question, how do we move towards a healthier, more Christ-centered model when it comes to our understanding of Christian manhood? 
and, and helping those come into the faith, not remain just as they are, but to become a new man in Christ? How do we get healthier models of, you know, respecting the, the giftedness of women and their place in the body? How, how do we move away from objectifying and marginalizing anyone, um, and particularly in this case, women in, in our uh, churches? What are some things you're seeing as successes um, and ways we're doing better, and yet places we still need to go and get to? Let me just throw that out, kind of wrap this podcast up. I think one example that I've seen um, this over the last year is the appointment of Dr. Candace McQueen as the president of Lipscomb University. And the on the positive side, you know, she's the, the first one at Lipscomb, I think only the second one in our movement, um, right behind um, Ima Johnson. But to, to see that that decision was taken is a, a huge step forward. But there's also a negative side of that. And that is some of the criticism that the university got for appointing her that then also can affect their bottom line. It and it wasn't it wasn't because of her qualifications or those types of things. Some some of the comments that that I read were just really derogatory. They it just really was not it just wasn't Christ-like. And so um so on one hand I see it as really positive and I'm super excited about her position there and and then also see that it it shows that we still have there's a sore spot that we still need to kind of work through by seeing some of the other responses. Yeah. Change is painful. And typically um, in our movement, particularly in the churches of Christ, because that's what I'm most acquainted with. We, we go kicking and screaming whenever change is brought up. And so uh, what Lipscomb did was a incredibly historic moment and it's a great moment. Um, uh, and it, what a wonderful thing for us to see. But I, I think as we move forward, one of the things we need to do in terms of um, valuing women is to not allow culture to drive the train um, or not allow our traditions uh, to dictate how we're going to go forward, um, but to really uh, allow Christ and how did Christ interact with women and and how did Christ teach us to value women um, what did what can we learn from Christ and and in, in everything we do um, you know if we're not exhibiting the fruit of the spirit in our relationships um, particularly as we're talking about in this podcast toward women um, then can can we ever be right if we don't have the spirit of Christ I would I would circle back to something I a question I asked myself earlier you know why I stay with the church because God is God, and despite, I could sit for hours and give you a litany of examples of just, you know, slights, negative assertions, what have you. But on, the, on another breath, I could talk to you about men who have created spaces of mutuality. God-fearing men who revere women who have asked me to participate in the gospel actively without denigration, without um, accusation, and with full encouragement. And right when I, I have needed it most, 
God has, has reminded me of these men who see the gospel in terms of wholeness, male, female, each made in the image of God. And for that, for those men, I am exceedingly grateful. It's uh, been inspiring to be a part of the conversation. Just even the makeup of this panel, just if you were just to take it as a microcosm, to me that says, you know, there's hope here. Obviously, God is still God, like Alicia said. And, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. I appreciate Ben saying that, you know, <laughs> change is hard and especially hard in our tribe. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's part of it. But um, I think that God's moving us in this direction. And I will tell you something that that's irrepressible. We're either going to change um, and let God, you know, make us a new wineskin community, or we are going to just be passed by because the next generation, and I'm speaking uh, particularly at our church, we've got a next generation and man, we want to, we want to do better for them. And we want to model, uh, you know, um, the way to be with gender equality and with having uh, integrity in terms of how we interpret the scripture and humility regarding our hermeneutic, that just because my hermeneutic is A or, or B doesn't mean that someone else's is automatically wrong because it's different. Uh, and, th and they are pushing us in a good way. And we really, really want to get it right for them and uh, to not have any of these young men or women in particular feeling like there's no place for me in this, in a church. Uh, we have the opportunity so, you know, they, the uh, Alicia's and Tina's of this next generation uh, don't have to have the, the same uh, negative experiences and can have many more positive experiences that uh, Alicia shared about. So it's hopeful moving forward, but there's a lot of work to do. I think that the one thing that that is important for me to remember is that in what you're saying, Kevin, it's so that so that the world sees the unity and the relevance and the the goodness of the gospel demonstrated in us. So it's 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 not the end goal that that women don't have an uncomfortable experience or or in the racial justice thing that there's equality, but it's so that the world sees and experiences this deep love and transformation of the gospel that should be demonstrated in us because the world is hurting. Boy, great note going out, Tina. The church is, you know, the one entity that exists for those outside of it primarily to, to bring people to God and to see them reconciled to him and their lives transformed. And there's always transformation that needs to happen in the life of our churches as we're all growing more and more into the image of Christ. Well, I appreciate the conversation. Um, Alicia, uh, Ben, uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us this week. Tina, great to co-host with you. We're going to be back next week for the third episode in our series, looking at kind of the fallout, uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill and implications to our restoration churches. So join us again. Our panel will be back. Know you're loved by God. Go out and love one another and get a cup of coffee and get to know one another. That's our motto on Common Grounds. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.